Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at EHN.org. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. We are here every two weeks with you, every other Wednesday. But for the next couple months, we are going to be adding bonus episodes. So there'll be about three episodes a month. So check that out. Stay with us. Please subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and keep on top of all the good things we have going on. I hope spring is upon most of you. It is not here where I live. We have plenty of snow, still freezing temperatures. I'm still on the indoor bike, but I'm staying positive, I swear. Quick reminder that we are still accepting applications for our next round of Agents of Change Fellows. The deadline is April 15th, so get on it. You can get all the information about the fellowship and apply at agentsofchangeinej.org. I wanted to give a nod to one of our supporters, which I've told you about before, Beauty Counter, a clean beauty brand on a mission to get safer products into the hands of everyone. Over 1,800 questionable ingredients are never used in their product formulations, and they advocate tirelessly for safer industry regulations because they believe beauty should be good for you. You can learn more at beautycounter.com. All right, on today's show, former fellows Dr. Lariah Edwards, a postdoctoral scientist working jointly at the George Washington School of Public Health and the Environmental Defense Fund, and Dr. Teresa Gillette, an environmental scientist at Arcatus, take over the podcast to talk about what it's been like for them as women of color navigating the environmental health field. Enjoy. So welcome to the Age of Change podcast. My name is Lariah Edwards, and I am joined by my colleague, Teresa Gillette. And we are two women of color, both environmental health scientists at early stages of our careers. I am a Black woman uh, currently studying chemicals and consumer products and in fast foods, doing a postdoc at GW and the Environmental Defense Fund. And I am a Hispanic woman in environmental science. I did a previous postdoc at the EPA, and now I'm working in environmental consulting on PFAS remediation. So we're both studying chemicals. We're both early in our careers, and we wanted to take a bit to reflect on the unique experiences that we have had as women of color um, navigating the environmental health field. We've had some similar challenges, but also some differences. And Grad school and this early phase of your career can already be hard enough, but I, we feel like there are unique challenges that we face as women of color, particularly in a field that's largely dominated by white men. So in our Agents of Change Fellowship sessions, I remember Teresa first introduced herself as TC, and she spoke a bit about why that was the case. And now to this day, I alternate back and forth between emails calling her Teresa and TC for no reason in particular. It just stuck out to me. <laughs> Yeah, so one issue I felt early on was that using my um, name in publishing, I felt like switching to a gender neutral name kind of really helped with my grant and peer reviews. Um, I think this really speaks to the double challenge that being a person of color and woman in this field uh, face, because we're both dealing with aspects of racism and sexism. Mariah, recently your Agent of Change essay remarked on the emotional toll that people of color face within this field while doing eBay work. Can you expand a little bit on that? 
Yeah, honestly, that is something I never would have thought about before joining the environmental health field. And I kind of wish I would have known that I'd face this really unique challenge that could also be very isolating. And well, I think it's great that businesses and diversity uh, organizations are focusing more on diversity and equity and inclusion. You know, just doing it doesn't make it great. Sometimes it can be done poorly. Yeah, I I definitely agree with you. I think that some of these organizations really tend to put everyone in the same box. Either you're a person of color or you're not. And so I think highlighting both our similarities and differences with regard to our career trajectories within this field is important as we really don't have the same backgrounds. And so here we wanted to touch base on a couple of main points that we wish we would have known at the start of our early careers. One of them, I think, is to create a community within an isolating environment. I moved from a undergraduate university, which was primarily Hispanic serving institution, to a graduate school that had less than 1% representation from Hispanic scientists. This was a huge culture shock for me, not even um, just moving from San Antonio to South Carolina. And one of the things that I did to try and uh, mitigate this really kind of isolating environment was stayed in contact with my undergrad uh, mentors during this time and participated in several conferences like the um, Society for Advancement of Chicanos and Native Americans in Science during graduate school. I also sought out multicultural events and really tried to start to develop my voice as a Hispanic scientist. Um, so, Lariah, you maybe had a similar but different background with moving from an HBCU to a different university for graduate school. Can you talk a little bit about that difference? Was it really hard to adjust in the beginning? Absolutely. I moved from a historically Black college in North Carolina to a private university, Boston University in Boston, Massachusetts. And Everything about that transition was very, very hard. I was the only Black PhD student for the entire time I was there. My department did have one Black faculty member and a few Black staff members, but overall, it was just, it was a lonely experience. And Boston as a city, I feel like, you know, Boston proper doesn't reflect the diversity that there actually is here in the city. So both within school and outside of school, there was just difficult for me to create a community that really understands my experiences as a Black woman. Were there any particular conferences or um, organizations that help you navigate early on within um, graduate school to help kind of ease some of this isolation? You know, for the first few years, Actually, most most of my time there, not as much. I didn't reach out to, you know, conferences or organizations. Then there wasn't really much there. Uh, I believe BU didn't develop a diversity organization for students until my first year there. And again, those students were mostly master's students who, after, you know, two years of the program, they would leave. And so there was always this, you know, rotating door of students of color coming in. So it was just harder being one of the only 
one of the only students of color in the PhD program and the only black student of color in my department's PhD program. But I remember I did go to, you know, the annual biomedical research conference minority students as um, before joining grad school. So that helped. And then I also went to SACNIS one year, which I think you mentioned you went to as well, Teresa. Yeah, yeah. Some really great organizations. Um, One other point that I think I really want to bring up too is that I think universities really tend to pile all the DEI initiatives onto people of color. And so I would really caution people with overcommitting to these specific things. Really, this is your career and you should always put yourself first. You're going to get asked to do a million and one things and it is okay to say no and kind of really prioritize yourself and what you feel comfortable doing. I think the burden of fixing a system that is broken for people of color does not solely fall on us. Lariah, have you ever felt overwhelmed or um, voluntold to do specific things within universities that maybe just became a little bit too much sometimes? Voluntold is a really great way to describe that. But, <laughs> you know, I that's not something I can say that I experienced. Um, I actually didn't participate in any diversity initiatives in graduate school because there really weren't any, to my knowledge. Um, when I joined BU School of Public Health for my PhD in environmental health in 2013, I remember talking to another master's student at the time who said that there wasn't a students of color organization and that she was starting it. So I would go to meetings, but I think as I mentioned earlier, it was mostly meetings for the very large, you know, class of master's students that come in and do their program for two years and then leave. And so I was really missing that um, the type of diversity program that was there for doctoral students. And it wasn't until maybe two or so years ago that my department actually developed some of a diversity initiative within the department to focus on diversity and inclusion. So I that's that's something that's interesting, but that's wasn't uh, an experience that I can speak to at least. Yeah. Um, so I think another point that I wanted to really bring up too was, and I think this is something really that speaks to, to everyone, but particularly for um, people of color is to advocate for yourself. Um, within this, you're going to have a lot of comments and microaggressions that come up and it's okay to stand up for yourself. I know, I know a couple of, of early ones I had, um, was in talking to different grad schools and different departments. One of the things that they, a couple of people would say would be, oh, well, you got that grant because you're a a minority or you got this because you're this. And that just really kind of like, it, it can tear you down sometimes, but don't let it. Um, I think you can stand up for yourself in an honest and non-confrontational way. And the key to that is really learning good communication skills. I've had the benefit of being um, white passing, but I think sometimes this can be a double-edged sword because people are very honest when they don't think any people of color are listening So surrounding yourself with supportive people that are genuine and um, just really caring individuals 
is just essential because all of these types of things and comments can really hurt your self-confidence. So, Lariah, how did you find some support groups or people early within your research career? I was fortunate enough to have um, friends within the program, other doctoral students who were going through the program with me that were very supportive. Um, and there and there were some people of color in the pro- program, even if there were, weren't any um, other Black PhD students, but I did find support amongst that group. Um, and I just want to say you're you're mentioning about, you know, being white passing, that being a double-edged sword. That is something that, you know, I had not thought of. Um, when you're talking about how you addressed confrontation, my first thought was, you know, when I address, attempt to address confrontation in like a workplace setting or a professional setting, I am always doing these mental Olympics about, you know, how, how do I say this without, you know, playing into that ugly stereotype of being like an angry Black woman who's just yelling and then everything I say is just glossed over or just brushed off as I'm just being aggressive or, you know, being problematic. So it's, it's different that we, it's interesting that we have these different things we go through in terms of confrontation and, um, you know, dealing with microaggressions in the workplace. As you, as you move into your job, how do you feel like as you, now that you're older, do you feel more comfortable addressing these types of confrontations? I do. I think um, I have a lot more empathy than I did early on. Um, and I'm really trying to to utilize that empathy to get at, you know, what some of these people are thinking when they say some careless comments sometimes. Um, that's hard sometimes, right? Because I also have the, the stereotype of, of being that like hot Latin anger. <laughs> And sometimes that does happen. So I do have to go and take a walk and just, you know, <laughs> walk it all out. Okay. <laughs> and, and just come back to it at another point. But I think I've learned more patience than I ever would have thought possible. Um, so into that, you know, what are some red flags that I think really come up when you're choosing a lab or a workspace for you? Um, You know, is it some offhand comments? Is it the just general vibe that you get from people? Like what are, what are some things that you've noticed when transitioning to other labs or jobs? You know, it's, it's, it it really is hard to find those red flags because, you know, ideally you would see them in the interview and then never step into a toxic environment or a place ever again. And I, I can't say I've nailed them down, but I think reflecting back on where I've been and how those experiences were, I now am starting to realize when I don't see uh, people of color or, you know, women in leadership positions or in more senior roles that to me can be a red flag of a tough environment that's not going to support me as I, as I move up. Um, and I think when sometimes some of the off-hand cons as well, comments about, you know, how I wear my hair and how, when it changes and the different styles I put in, I think people who are less quick to make a big spectacle about it, um, those are green flags, signs for me that this is maybe a place that I could feel comfortable being in. 
That's, oh, I like that term, green flags. That's definitely one that I will look for going forward as well. So, Lariah, um, why don't you touch base on a couple of points from your perspective on things that have helped you during this early start to your career? Absolutely. And you you hit on some really, really great ones. Uh, and then your last point about advocating for yourself. I feel like that's a perfect like segue into one of my really big points is asking for help when you need it. Because I think it's important as a healthy part of advocating for yourself is recognizing when you need more help than you can give yourself. Um, so maybe that means it means different things based on your comfort level, but seeking help when you realize it is you're overwhelmed, you're a bit underwater and you need it. And it's outside of what you're capable of doing for yourself is important. So that can mean talking to a friend that could mean going to therapy. That could mean a lot of different things. In grad school, I didn't have, um, I didn't have that group of other, a lot of other people of color who I can turn to and, you know, we can, they will immediately understand my experience and, I, I needed help and didn't know where to turn. So at times for me, it meant going to therapy. For me, it meant going to speak to maybe the dean of the program to help me figure out how to navigate my mentors or trying to figure out um, a better strategy for myself. Um, did you have any issues like that, Teresa, where you felt like you needed you know extra support more than you can give yourself? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think graduate school in particular is just one of those difficult times in your life where you're just questioning everything. <laughs> I mean, you know, you learn yeah. that too with the sciences, right? Because you're, you're learning how to question things. But I think um, some of the things that I did early on was finding um, a community of support through shared hobbies. So I really love um, photography. And so a couple of friends of mine would get together and we would go and spend a weekend photographing certain things. And those really were my getaways and how I could just kind of connect back to myself and find some support in in nature, which is kind of like how I find a lot of my support. Um, so I think it can look it can look differently for a lot of different people, but finding what works for you early on is so, so important. No, that's, yeah, that's awesome. It sounds like your support were having people that you could, you know, be yourself around and could, could reach out to. Um, as you transition or and move, move on into your career, how do you, does that going to look different in terms of, have you identified folks that maybe in your job you can turn to and you need that bit of extra help? How do you feel about that? Yeah, you know, the pandemic has, has kind of put a, <laughs> a little bit of a, a pin <laughs> on a lot of different social aspects. And so I yeah. think now in this time of remote everything, it's been a little bit difficult to find those support networks. But your point of asking for help when you need it and going and seeking that out is so, so important because, you know, sometimes it just takes one email to say like, hey, would you have time for a 
five to 10 minute chat on Zoom. I could just really use some advice <laughs> on X, Y, or Z. And honestly, um, the, the hardest thing is reaching out. But once you do it and you actually talk to people that are supportive um, and finding those people, it's it's like a breath of fresh air. Like it's just a whole body reset. And so, yeah, it's, it looks a little different now, but uh, I think like everyone, I'm just learning my own thing too. <laughs> you know what? You're right. Honestly, reaching out can be, could it be the hardest part of this, which brings me to my next point. Celebrate every milestone, every single bit of progress. So even, even if it's just emailing someone that you need to speak to for a bit of help, Every little step towards the end goal is very important. And of course, when you're in graduate school, you're particularly in a doctorate, you're working towards that degree that takes years. You often forget to celebrate the little moments that happen between those big, between, you know, starting and defending. Um, And I know as for me, as a Black woman, I I was raised with this well-meaning, but inevitably, you know, toxic you know, mindset that I have to work twice as hard just to be half as good. And so I think that oftentimes led me to hustle and always be working towards that angle. Okay, I got to defend by, you know, this number of years and then start figuring out my next step. And I'm always so focused on the angle. I forget the little moments in between um, something as simple as someone saying, hey, you did a great job on that first intro of your of this paper or that first draft, awesome, or even doing well at a presentation to my department. Those little things, I, I don't, I didn't had a hard time celebrating them. It was only when friends and people in my support system forced me to celebrate them that I actually did. Um, what about you, Teresa? Did you did you celebrate the little moments in grad school? You know, not necessarily the the, the paper being published, but you know, the step the step before that. Yeah, uh, in grad school, it was a little bit harder. But in my or my first postdoc, oh, my, uh, my mentor was actually really great for this. He created this box that we would put like happy moments in. And when he first introduced <laughs> it, I like I was so skin- cynical. I, I like kick myself now. <laughs> because I was just like, oh, what, whatever, like what just another thing to do, like, blah, blah, blah. And now I look back on it. And I'm like, you you genius like that's a great little thing um to just like put in some happy moments and then you know at the end of my time in that lab we opened up the box and like I was tearing up at some of the things that the undergrads had put in there and some of the things I had put in there and it was just like one of those things of like self-reflection of like yeah you gotta you gotta celebrate you got to have a good time and this like the world is dark enough like you don't need to add to it um <laughs> so yeah I I really liked that part of it that was that was so much fun um as well as like you know I think sometimes when we become mentors in our own right we sometimes do more than we do for we do more for others than sometimes we do for ourselves and um one thing that I always used to like to do was whenever the undergrads had like a great thing or one of the graduate students uh while I was a postdoc like we just 
I'd go and buy him a coffee, you know, like a, like a happy thing. Like we'd just go and take a walk and I'd grab him a coffee or a tea and we'd just kind of like celebrate together. And like those little moments are something that like still really sit with me um, during hard times. And I remember them doing the same thing of like when I had a, a milestone that I reached, like they would be like, oh, let's go get you a coffee. And so just those like little things of creating that community of positive um, moments is just, I think it's important. Oh, absolutely. And it's, I, I love the box idea. If I ever mentor students in my career, I'm going to use that because that's, that's great. And I know it's, it's harder now, right? During COVID, I, you know, I don't, I'm not with my coworkers. We can't just go step out for a coffee, but I think now as a postdoc, I do a better job of treating myself. So if I just did really well at a presentation or even a meeting with my advisors where I feel like I did a good job addressing all the points I wanted to address, everybody felt good with the plan I proposed. I'm like, okay, great. I was up late. I'm going to go take myself for a coffee. I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to cut out of work 30 minutes early today and then, you know, start 30 minutes early tomorrow to treat myself like this. It is so important um, just to give yourself a moment to recognize how far you've come. Um, and then my, my last really big point is definitely one of these things where I admit this is still a work in progress. So do as I say, not as I particularly do, uh, but create a life outside of your, out of your work. Um, I think, and Teresa can probably agree with this, or she might agree with this, that, you know, you, as environmental scientists, your work is meaningful. It's for the public good. You're trying to understand how this chemical causes a health effect, and you're trying to publish to maybe persuade policy to, to, to cause change, and you can get sucked up into that and not have a life outside of that. And so it's important, I think, to devote time to your hobbies or your personal interests you know, particularly to create some balance that pulls you away from your work and keeps you sane and healthy. And then, you know, as, you know, a person of color, I think this is even more important because oftentimes in our workspaces, we are maybe the the only, the the only woman, the only person of color, the only woman and person of color. And you often don't feel comfortable showing up as your whole self at work. And so you're effectively presenting a part of you and then kind of hiding away another part of you, which is hard and it it's mentally exhausting and it's straining. So I think when you have a life outside of work where you can be fully present and fully yourself, it is bound to be good for your mental health. I'm sure if I looked up studies about this, I could probably find something saying it's good. It's good for your mental health. Um, I know in grad school, it was it was hard. It was very, very hard. But I did Big Brothers, Big Sisters for a year. And so I would meet my little sister at the community center near my apartment. And we would do crafts. We would talk about music. We would paint nails. And that was just, that was nice to have a little bit of time outside of my work. Um, and Teresa, you mentioned earlier that you did photography in grad school. Is that something you still keep up with as kind of like a a hobby of yours or something outside of work? I do. Yeah. I love photography. It's like one of my um, guilty pleasures. I definitely spend probably much 
more time and money on it than I should. Um, but I think well, it, it brings me, <laughs> I think it brings me a lot of, of balance. Um, this year, I'm trying my hardest to get a photograph of a bear. So every year I do basically um, like one species that I want to photograph. Haven't had much luck, but there's still time. There's still time. <laughs> so yeah, I think um, for me, I really love creative outlets because I, I was a music major before going into science. And I think I still really miss that um, kind of performance art aspect of, of music. And so kind of delving into some creative hobbies for me has been really great. Um, and just, yeah, adding a lot of self-worth and balance to my life that work can't fulfill um, all the time. And so I, I love your point of like kind of getting out and, and really becoming your full self. So I think here we've definitely discussed our perspective and tips to thrive in environmental health careers as both women and people of color. So these specific tips have helped us throughout our early research careers and are some things that we wish we would have known before jumping into this field. Obviously, these aren't the end-all be-all, and following up, we would definitely love to hear from people on their tips for guiding people of color in research careers. So we'll be dropping some of these on our um, social media pages, but please comment um, with any questions and tips of your own. All right, that's all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed their conversation. We are going to be doing more of this, letting the fellows take over the podcast, and we are so excited to mix things up. If you enjoy what we're doing, help us out. Visit agentsofchangeinej.org, and while you're there, click the donate button to support us. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram, and please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, where you can listen to this and all past episodes. We have quite a nice little archive growing over there. This podcast was recorded and produced by Dr. Lariah Edwards and Dr. Teresa Gillette, edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Amizoda, Dr. Yoshida Ornelas Vanhorn, Dr. Max Ong, Summer Ahmad, and Hannah Seo. Our team would like to hear from you. You can email us at agentsofchangeinej at gmail.com and sign up for our monthly newsletter at the program homepage, agentsofchangeinej.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity and science and health going. Join me next time when I speak with Rodrigo Alatriste Diaz, a PhD candidate in development sociology at Cornell University and a researcher at UC Merced's Community and Labor Center. Have a great week, folks. Thank you.